Um, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. My name is Wes, as uh, Jacob already mentioned. That's all you really need to know about me, uh, because I'm here to make much of Jesus Christ and, uh, and what He's done. Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Thank you for having me today. I am uh, deeply appreciative of that, and I hope today that, that we will see from God's Word truth that, that God wants to instill to you. Uh, not a, a new truth, but a truth that he wrote thousands of years ago through his inspired word. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read that in just a second. But before we read that, let me set the, the scene and the context of what's going on here. In the uh, beginning of chapter 9, there is this absolutely incredible event, um, starting in verse 2 there. This, this life-giving event um, with Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're, they're sitting there, and they experience together, all of them, the transfiguration of, of Jesus Christ. And hey, I would love to get into the nuances and the details and what all that means and what the, 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 the implications and the applications of who Jesus is, but uh, we can't dive into those specifics. Just suffice it to say that if you were there and you experienced it and you saw Jesus do what he did in that moment, it would be a powerful moment in your life that you would not soon forget. It would inspire you to go out and take on the world for who Jesus Christ is and to make his name known to the people that are around you. It, it, would, it would fire you up on the inside. And then all of a sudden in verse 14, after experiencing this event, the tone shifts drastically because J Jesus and these three disciples that are with Jesus are smacked in the face with reality. They're, they're going from this life-giving event of experiencing this intimate moment with Jesus Christ, and now they're going back and they find a group of religious folks arguing because they have failed miserably at what they were trying to do. What is it that they were trying to do exactly? Well, they were trying to uh, remove a demon from a little boy that, that was there. Uh, they were trying to exercise this demon. Now, as soon as I say that, your ears might have perked up, demon possession, because I would. I'm very interested in that. I'm all about that and studying and knowing what it is. I have very strong opinions, but I would just encourage you that if all you're doing here is uh, to, to figure out what this says about demonic possession, you, you've missed the point. That's, that's not Jesus's point for you and for me and, and why this story is recorded. But I would say to you that one of the things that we have to agree on to, to understand this text properly is spiritual warfare is real. It's, it's, it's present, it's prevalent in our lives, probably, at least for me, more so than, than we even realize, and I'd like to, to illustrate this for you. I was in a seminar a few weeks ago for a church revitalization, and there were people from um, all over the East Coast, uh, one guy from Tennessee, another one from Georgia, a few from North Carolina, I think there was a guy that flew in from, I think it was Puerto Rico, somewhere really far away. Anyway, we're, we're gathering together and we're sharing about our, our ministry context. And one guy is, is there and, he, and he's speaking about this really, how uh, he had this really big problem, this, this issue that he was trying to confront. And he wasn't sure what to do with it. And he'd just been praying and praying and praying and praying. And God solved the problem for him. The very day before he arrived there for the seminar, we're all there together. And, and he said, I had this really big problem and I prayed about it. And God just answered the prayer in, a, in, a, in an amazing way. And you could see that, that he was excited because he saw God's hand move. He was, he was I mean, just his face was, was lit up with excitement. And it was incredible to, to hear this story from him. And so, you know, we, we go through the seminar the first day. We come back together the next day, and his face and demeanor are entirely different. It's, it's, it's not the same guy that we saw the day before. 
And so we're like, what's up? What's going on? And, and he said, well, I got back to the hotel room last night and I called my wife and one of my kids has the flu. The other one has a double ear infection. And my wife had just gotten home because she was stranded on the side of the highway because my car broke down and she had no way to get there. And she finally just got home. And, and, and you and I look at that and we think coincidence, right? But as thinking through it more so, I don't, I don't necessarily think that was the case there. I think that might have been a case of spiritual warfare because Satan understood and knew that this guy who leads this church in Tennessee, if he would take the things that he was learning from the seminar, took it back to his church, it would strengthen his church. And if there's one thing that Satan hates, it's a strong, healthy, vibrant church. He wanted that guy to leave. He wanted that guy to, to not be there. And he was doing everything he could to, to make sure that it's not happened. Spiritual warfare is a very real thing that we have to contend with. Is every negative event in your life spiritual warfare? Probably not. But we should never ignore the fact that it is real and present. You see, I'm convinced that whenever people and even churches grow stronger together and towards Jesus... As they connect to Jesus on a, on a deeper level, it terrifies Satan. And the disciples in the, in the story and the events that we're about to read, they weren't physically present with Jesus. They were, they were disconnected and, and different, or disconnected and, and separate from Him. But all of a sudden, Jesus shows up onto the scene and He's going to correct some of the thoughts that the people have here. So if, you, if you're a note taker, here's the overarching theme, the, the main point that I, I want to give you. Great things can happen when we are connected to Jesus. Great things can happen when we are connected to Jesus. This is what it says in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and he and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times... It has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to the Father, If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into a terrible convulsions. The boy came, became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking 
him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that that you are a God that, that cares about us. We're thankful that that you are a God that that has not left us, that has not turned your back on us, but you are a God that is standing there with with open arms, ready to greet us. Lord, I don't possibly know every situation of where people are coming from here in this room today, whether they've been running from you, whether they've been running towards you, but you do, and they do. And Lord, I, I pray that in these next few moments that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would hide me behind the gospel, that, that you would be glorified in in what is said and done. May today be a a launching point for for more things, for for, for deeper relationships with You. Lord, we desire to be connected to You. Enlighten us and show us how it is that that we are to do that. God, I I also pray that if there's someone here today that, that needs to be connected to You for the first time, that today would be the day that they would respond to the Gospel message before it is too late. Lord, if there's something that is said here today that is not true, may may it be forgotten. But Lord, whatever truth is spoken, may it be applied. And may we look more like Your Son because of what we experience here today. We pray all this in Your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. The story picks up, and where we are in verse 14, Jesus is reunited with the other disciples that were there. He walks onto the scene, and He sees a large crowd of religious folks. What are these religious folks doing? Well, these religious folks were doing what religious folks often tend to do, which is argue. They were bickering. They were fighting with one another in the the sequence of events and what had just transpired. And Jesus shows up and he says, what's the deal? Why are you arguing? Why are you fighting? Why are you bickering? And then a, a parent of the boy, maybe the father or the mother, doesn't specify which one it is here now, spoke up and and says, my boy is suffering from a demon. He's been possessed by a demon. And, and we don't know what to do. The, the demon is making him do all these horrific things by grinding his teeth and foaming at the mouth and being thrown into the fire and being drowned and all, all these different things. And, and just to help you connect to the story a little bit better, this is a, this is a boy, a, a small child that is suffering in this way. And I'm sure you have children in your life that you care about and you've seen them sick and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And doesn't it just break your soul to not be able to do anything about it? And here are these parents in the same situation. Can you imagine years and years and years on end of, of not being sure what's going to happen? Is today the day that he's going to die? Is today the day that he's going to be thrown into the fire and not come out? Is today the day? This, what you and I experience pales in comparison to what these parents were going through. And so the parent explains the condition of the boy and everything that he's suffering from and tells Jesus what happens. He was brought to Jesus' disciples for healing, and they failed. They were unable to drive out this spirit that had such a deep grip on this little boy. They tried. Maybe they tried their very hardest and did the best that they could, but at the end of the day, even if they did do that, they failed. Big time. And we're unable to drive out the demon. And, and this is kind of a, a, a side point. I always like to make gospel connections where possible. So maybe if you take notes, shot this over to the side under, under gospel connections. But, but here's what I want to communicate to you about, about this particular point here. Is in our failures, Jesus picks us up. 
because he walks onto the scene here and he surveys the situation. And he says, the disciples have failed. He, he sees that and he knows that. And they made a, a muck of the situation. And now, instead of helping the boy, they're sitting here arguing about what just happened. It's a bad situation. And everybody's on edge and the disciples failed. But just like the disciples failed, you failed. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the standard that God has set for you in, in your life. And that sin has made a muck of things in your life, personally and professionally, and in the life of the church. And the 101st Psalm God says that his eyes, his eyes rest on those that are pursuing righteousness. In other words, your sin and your failures are a big deal. So what does Jesus do for his disciples? He corrects them. And the way that he corrects people firmly, yet lovingly. Firmly, yet lovingly. And resolves the situation. And what does Jesus do for your failures and your sin? He corrects them. Firmly, yet lovingly. And He resolves the situation that, that has been created because of your sin and he, and he paid for it. And so if you're here today and you recognize that truth, today can be the day that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Yeah, yeah Jesus resolves our sin situation just as He did with the disciples here. But He also told the disciples that, that they had the capability, they had the power, they had the wherewithal to be able to drive out this demon. How? Well, in essence, they, they, they had to be more connected to Him. They had to be more deeply connected to Him. And so, I, I'm just going to assume, I hope not an error, that at Simmons Grove Baptist Church, and as you as an individual, you want to do great things for the name of Jesus Christ. You want to make His name known. I'm just going to assume that to be true. And so the question is, how do we do that? We do that by being connected to Jesus. How do we get connected to Jesus? I want to share two things with you that I see here about being connected to Jesus. So the question is, how can we be connected to Him? The first one comes in verse 23, by having faith. By having faith. The Father is frantic and upset. All these people are choosing to argue instead of trying to help His Son in some way. Can I just time out for a second? I've been around church pretty much my entire life. And I've seen a lot of fighting, I've seen a lot of arguing, and I've seen a lot of bickering. And not once have I left those settings and thought, wow, that was very much worth fighting over. It's been over the silliest, mundane, little things. And I think to myself now, as these fights continue to ensue and these bickering sessions continue to happen, and I think, how much time are we wasting arguing and fighting, going back and forth with one another about mundane issues when there are lost and dying people across the street, across town, across the county that are lost and are bound for hell right now while we care more about colors and we care more about translations and we care more about all these mundane, secondary, tertiary, and other areas of our life that, that mean nothing. We should be spending more time sharing the gospel with other people instead of arguing. We should be spending more time praying for one another instead of arguing. You know, I've heard a lot of fights, as I said. Never heard a fight over the best way to share the gospel with people. Never heard that argument. Never heard the argument of, of how, what is the most effective way to get out in our community and, and witness to people. Never, never been a part of that argument. I would love to. I would love to be a part of that argument. But I've never seen it. I've never witnessed it personally. That's a sidebar. That's for free. So Jesus says here, Jesus asks, why are they arguing? And the father says, because, well, I brought my son here. He has a demon. 
but they can't do anything about it. They were unable to drive out the demon. And he pulls no punches when he says here in verse, uh, in, in, in the verse here, and he says that you unbelieving generation. You unbelieving generation. The, un- the disciples could not do it. And another way to phrase this is, is oh, faithless generation. This is not the first nor the last time Jesus brought up their lack of faith. What's interesting is, is Jesus points out their lack of faith here. And he observes the Father begging Jesus. And, and he says, if, if you can do anything... Jesus, please do it. The father is pleading with Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, if you can, of course I can. The problem is not Jesus. The problem is not him and his power or what they assume lack of power. The problem is the people's lack of faith. It's not a Jesus problem. It's a father problem. It's not a Jesus problem. It's a you problem. And me problem. And the father even admits, he says, I do believe, but I need help. Jesus, help my unbelief. And we see the helplessness of the father here. That this is a problem he can't fix for himself. People from all times, even Jesus' closest followers, struggled with having faith in him. If you go back just a couple of chapters here to Mark chapter 4, you're familiar with the story, I'm sure. And he says uh, the idea of the, uh, the storm and, and what's going on here. And he, and he calls out to the storm and, and here they are in the boat. And Jesus gets up and he, and he, he calms the storm by just by speaking to it. Instantly it, it stops. And he says, you, why, why do you have such little faith? Why are you afraid This is not the first time you can see time and time again Jesus' disciples and their lack of faith in Him. Disciples and apostles and the church as a whole has a reputation of doing absolutely incredible things. And yet, if we aren't careful, we'll find ourselves exactly like these disciples here. Arguing about past failures and things that don't matter. As a brother or sister lay suffering, perhaps even dying. And so I have a question for you as a church. Do you have God-sized goals that only He can accomplish? And if not, why? And if I could just maybe pinpoint a reason, maybe even the reason, perhaps it's because of a lack of faith in who God is. I wonder if Jesus were to to walk through the doors and and be a part of, of, of this church if you would walk through the, the people and mingle with them and make the statement, you unbelieving church, because of their lack of faith in who God is. And drilling down just as deep as we can, I wonder if he were to take a look in your personal life. Would he ask the same question? Would he make the same statement? I'm convinced that Jesus wants to do something incredible through you. Jesus wants to do something incredible through this church. The question is not, and the problem is not Jesus. That's not the issue here. The problem is our lack of faith in him. So if it is true that you do indeed want to do great things for the name of Jesus Christ, he's not the problem. Our lack of faith is. As our faith increases, our connection with him also increases. But there's a second reason here. There's a second way we, be, we can be connected to Jesus. It's, it's by prayer. In verse 29, Jesus has words with this demon and the demon is called out. And in this process, 
They looked at Jesus and says, Jesus, you killed the boy. You messed up. Why would you do that? It says that he looked like a corpse and the people thought he was dead. But well, what does Jesus do? He reaches his hand down and he pulls, out, he pulls up the boy. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here of, of going from death to life that we could, we could dive in here. And it's, 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 it's really incredible to, to mirror this with the story of Jairus' daughter. It's almost identical sequence happens. They said, Jesus, you killed her. And he did the same thing. He reached down and he pulled up Jairus' daughter. And he reached down and he pulled up the boy. A symbol of going from, from death to life. But the boy is alive and well. And so it says they retreat or they, they go into a house. Whose house? I don't know. Apparently it doesn't matter because it doesn't say. But they, they go into this house. And they debrief, and Jesus and the disciples are sitting there. And the million-dollar question that I have when reading this story is the same question that the disciples had. And somebody finally is brave enough to ask it and says, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? And that's a valid question. Just a, a few chapters ago, Jesus sent them out, and they actually drove out a demon. They, they have experience in this. They've done it before, and they've done it well. But this time they failed. Why couldn't they do it this time? And Jesus looks at them with a loving yet firm answer and He says, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. What Jesus was getting at here is not just the fact that their prayer life was on the rocks, which could have been the case, but prayer does something to us as, as people. What prayer does, if nothing else, it accomplishes a lot of great things in our life. But, but what prayer also does is it shows us just how weak and fable we are in comparison to who God is and what He can do. One of the reasons we don't instantly go to prayer for all of our problems is because we think that we can solve it on our own. And maybe you can. But can I just submit to you that perhaps God has a better way? God has a, a better way for you to solve the situations and the circumstances that you're in. And they drove out demons in the past. And they were assuming that they could do it again. Why? Because they drove out demons in the past. And I wonder in the, in the life of the church if we don't fall into the same trap. A lot of churches that, that I, I, I talk to, they, they all say something. A lot of them say the same idea that, that their best days are, are behind them. The heyday of this church was, was back in you know, 1970 or 80 or whatever, fill in the blank, right? That, that their best days are, are behind them. And I just, I just don't buy that. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that is what God designed and how God wants that church to operate. And the reason that they think that is, well, we had this event. We had these things. We had this person. We had that pastor. We had this amount of money. We had all these things in the past. And, and what we're doing in those those moments is we're putting our hope and our faith and our trust in things that don't matter that were in the past. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. Please hear me. They were good. God blessed them and apparently blessed them abundantly. But what I am saying is it was God who worked through those things and it's God who can work through the future as well. So yeah, maybe you need to go through and say, you know what? This isn't effective anymore. Let's try this. And maybe God We'll move through that. Don't, don't kick things to the curb just because they're old. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God doesn't need events and things and even you. He, got, he has everything that He needs in Himself. He wants to show Himself off through this church. Be a church that prays and relies on God and you'll have that.
If Simmons Grove truly does want to do great things for the kingdom of God, and I, I think you do, the way you do that is by connecting to Jesus. And you connect to Jesus by having faith and by prayer. I'm convinced also in the next 10, 15, maybe 20 years, that evidence is going to make itself known. And we're going to see the churches that decided we're going to be connected to Jesus and care more about what he thinks than what culture thinks, to care more about what he thinks than what this says, and, 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 and be deeply connected to him. Because those churches are going to survive. Those churches are going to thrive no matter what because they're connected to him. But I think the flip side is also true. That in 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, we're going to see the evidence of churches that were not connected to Jesus that instead relied on the old things and the old ways and all these things in the past that worked so well then. And if that's what you're putting your hope and faith in, can I just say to you, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the wrong thing. If you want to do great things for Jesus Christ, you have to be connected to Him. If you want to be connected to Him, you do that by having faith that He can do incredible things. And by praying that He will indeed do Incredible things. I'm going to close in a word of prayer in, in just a moment. And if, if you're here today and, and you need to pray for repentance and saying, you know what, God, I, I put my faith everywhere but you. I would encourage you to, to do that. If you're here today and, and, and you've been running from God for a while now and you feel that, 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 that pull towards Him, that, that connection that, that you need, today can be the day that you get that as well. I would encourage you to do whatever it is that, that God is leading you to do in these next few moments uh, during our invitation. Let's pray together. Lord, You are great and mighty and incomprehensible. We are thankful, so very thankful, that You are a God that continues and chooses to work through people. God, may we be deeply connected to you. May you increase our faith as we see you moving and working. May that bolster our faith all the more. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand and realize there is nothing we can do apart from you. God, our, our greatest things, our greatest deeds are like filthy rags. But you are the one that can clean. You are the one that can make all things new. And I pray a blessing upon Simmons Grove, Lord, that they will do great things for you by being connected to you, by increasing their faith, and by praying and relying on you. And we pray all this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.